Cristo, pero ahora somos libres en Cristo. Esta libertad que Dios nos dio al entregar a su Hijo, ninguna persona aquí en esta tierra nos lo puede dar. Esta libertad es eterna y es aún mejor que cualquier libertad que tengamos aquí. Entonces, next, como cristiano, celebramos al héroe de héroes, este es Jesucristo. Y nosotros gritamos orgullosamente, viva el héroe que nos dio la libertad y vida eterna. Viva Cristo. Amen. Thank you. All right, good. So I'm glad you were able to use that. Maybe now you can help somebody else. And I suppose if you want to practice a foreign language, you could stay with the English to whatever language you want to practice right now. <clears throat> Or if you would like to receive this message in your own language because English is not your, your first language, please. Uh, now you know how to use this app. We are looking at the book of 2 Corinthians today. Some of you who have been here for a little while uh, know that we started, uh, we went through the book of 1 Corinthians a while ago, and 1 Corinthians was written by Paul, as most people think in about the spring of 55 AD. He wrote it to a group of believers who were pretty new in their faith. Of course, many people were new in their faith. Paul We've talked about evangelism, the good news. Paul was a great evangelist. He would communicate the good news to the, in the context of wherever he went with great passion, great boldness, and he suffered a lot because of it. But he was so, so convinced that Christ was the Messiah, that Christ was the Son of God, it didn't matter to him what consequences came. He had to speak about it. One of the places he went was a city called Corinth, a very cosmopolitan city. He spent 18 months in that city. So he shared his faith with people. Some embraced Christ. He organized a, a church, a gathering of people. He put people in charge uh, and taught them about what it means to have the gifts and to come together as a body. <clears throat> Then he went on. And as he went on, he heard reports that they were having problems in this church because whenever you get people together, you have problems. And so we looked at 1 Corinthians as the beautiful, messy bride of Christ. Beautiful, this is God's idea. And bringing people together from different backgrounds. It, it's impossible unless Christ has entered and broken down the dividing walls. But messy because you still have people. And they're struggling with sin and trying to overcome the world. And Paul said, look, here's some of the issues they wrote to him about. He gave them instructions in 1 Corinthians. And then apparently between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he had what was called a painful visit. He references it in chapter 2. And then he left again. And, and then in the fall, he wrote this second letter to the Corinthians that we have. 
addressing some more things. Primarily, he was other people would come into the church and began to wonder if Paul really had the authority to tell them about what it looked like to live the Christian life. And so part of 2 Corinthians, Paul spent a lot of time trying to explain why he actually has been called by God to shepherd them. And there are other people who are doubting that. And what's amazing to me about this, as we'll see in a moment, is not only does he argue that he's an apostle who's been called by God, but the, the thing that he presses the most is that what authenticates his authority is actually his weakness. It's not because of all that he's done, but it's actually because he understands God's grace so profoundly from beginning to end that grace is demonstrated in, in him actually embracing his weakness. So he says, anything I bring to you is not because of me, it's because of Christ. And so if he's going to boast, it's going to be in Christ only. And he's very serious. This is a letter where he's probably the most honest about his own personal struggles. Sometimes Paul comes across as kind of a, an abrasive, brash individual. But this humanizes him in many ways. And I find that really refreshing. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians together and work our way one text at a time until we get to the end of it. We'll take some break for Christmas as well. Uh, but we want to start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where we read about the God of all comfort. Here are the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also, through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of God. Well, introductions matter. Uh, don't they? When you first meet somebody, it's good to know some information uh, about them. Paul already knows some of these people, but some have come in since then, so he's reminding them of the very basis on which he can write this letter. So in the first several verses here, 
he talks about who he was as a, as a reminder. And the words that come to, uh, to bear here are important. The first word he uses that stands out is that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And apostle literally is a sent one. And in biblical terms, the original disciples qualified as apostles because they saw the resurrected Christ. If you know Paul's story in Acts chapter 9, he has an encounter with Jesus on the way to Damascus. He's trying to persecute Christians. Christ reveals himself. And so he's the final apostle, as it were. He was commissioned by Christ to go and to preach the gospel, not just to Jews, but primarily to the Gentiles, to people who had not had this rich heritage that we see in the Old Testament. So he has authority. <clears throat> when he uses that word, he's establishing it at the very beginning. And as we said, that's a prime reason this letter is being written. His authority is being challenged by others. And it's striking in this very personal letter that the primary proof he provides, of course, is Christ himself has called me to this task. And that task is filled with all kinds of difficulties, as we see. Another word that sticks out here uh, is Timothy, our brother. Brother's family language, right? So there are some churches, if you're not in church very much or something, that people say, hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, sister. It's family language. And Paul talks about this back in 1 Corinthians. We have been, we're one body. So it's an intimate term. Timothy is somebody who was a younger man that Paul brought alongside, trained as a pastor. And these two together are seen as brothers, not only to each other, but to all those who are in Christ. In fact, those who are in Christ are called a couple of terms here as well. Church, ecclesia in the Greek, literally the called out ones. The church is viewed in the Bible as a group of people who have been called out of darkness into light. And now they're brothers and sisters together as a family. It's not just a building. It's actually the people. We are the living stones upon which God is building his kingdom. And so when he says church, that's what he has in mind. But it's interesting. It's not siloed. We think of Redeemer Church and then Hope Church. Somebody at Discover Redeemer was saying, look for a two-mile radius here and you'll find a dozen churches, each one of them with a different name. What's fascinating to me is when Paul writes, he's often regional. He writes to the church in Corinth. It'd be like writing a letter to the church in Cincinnati. So it's not like we're opening up and say to Redeemer Church. It's the church in Cincinnati. It's the, the people together who are calling on God, the called out ones. It's very regional. I, I love that imagery here too. And, and, and the church is... We said messy beforehand, but notice he says, you are saints. Now look, mine, mine says, hello, my name is Pastor Mark. That's my name tag today. There was a song by Matthew West, I'm sure many of you know. Hello, my name is, and he has you fill in other things like regret or shame or failure. And we tend to think of ourselves, identify ourselves as something that that, that maybe is not really true about who we are. If you're in Christ, a brother or a sister, Paul, who knows all the mess from 1 Corinthians, calls you a saint. A saint is a holy one. The, the ones that are holy, how is that even possible? Because you are in Christ, the church of God in Corinth, together with the saints throughout Asia, who are in 
Christ. That peace comes from Jesus. So he sees you as a saint. A sinner, obviously, struggling. But because of Christ, in the courts of God, you're a holy one. Now look, Paul recognizes there's all kinds of problems. But when he's addressing the church, he says, you are all saints. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. So hello, my name is Saint. Maybe we should put that in our little labels next time. Hello, Saint. Hello, Saint. Oh, I'm a Saint too. You're a Saint also. Wonderful. In Christ, you're a Saint. And if you don't believe that, that's a great place to start. Is to say, Lord, give me the awareness that in Christ I am I'm a holy one. It's not dismissing the reality of our struggle with sin, as we'll see, but in the courts of God, because of Christ, you're a saint. That's how Paul views you anyway, and this is stamped with God's approval. And then finally he says grace and peace to this church. God's lavish love, that's how I think of grace. Undeserved, we don't earn it, and it's lavish. It's just envelops everything about us as, as a parent's love for a child is. It's immeasurable. It, and it's a bit formulaic, this idea of grace and peace kind of together, but peace conveys a declaration of rest. Be at rest. Be at peace. Together they form a greeting. But this word grace in particular is a dominant motif throughout the book. In fact, our whole series we're calling more grace for the journey. I had a friend, for those of you who went to St. Louis, and he used to say, more mercy, more mercy. That's what he said all the time. It was like, you know, something would happen that would be harder. More mercy, more mercy. And I, I said that for a long time, too. It was very catchy, like, oh, more mercy. Usually a catchphrase for, I got issues now, and I need God's grace or mercy to sustain me. It's like, more grace, more grace. We need more grace for the journey. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is something Paul will talk about as he writes a letter later, too, to the, to the Romans. I, I love this imagery in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. There's a lot happening there. He writes to a different group of people, but he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is, we're made right with God because of our faith in what he has done through Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, and this is the phrase that's amazing, into this grace in which we now stand. So you, you had access to God because of Christ. That was by grace from the beginning. And now, how do you continue standing? In grace. This is the grace in which you stand. So it, it makes sense that Paul would use this idea of grace from the beginning to the end throughout this letter where he talks so personally about his life. And you'll find it scattered throughout, literally, in the beginning and the end. We've already seen it. And then all throughout, he'll revisit this idea of God's lavish, undeserved love that he has held on to, but he stands in it now. Now, he starts talking then about what he wants to write of. And the first thing he talks about is the God of all comfort. That's a pretty obvious thing because as we look at verses 3 and, and 7 and really the remainder of this text, 
he's very clear that God is the source and the provider of all comfort. And comfort is used, doesn't seem to be triggering. I don't know if it's going to go 10 slides in advance, but right now it's not moving. Scott, could you just advance that for me? I don't know why it's not communicating anymore. Is that working for you too? Nothing. Everything's frozen. Ah, how comforting. So this, this is the God of all comfort uh, that we see here. And that, that's the measure. So this word comfort is used 10 times in this section. And the root idea, I mean, one person calls it this, a consolatory strengthening in the face of adversity that affords spiritual refreshment. That's quite a mouthful. But the idea behind it is somebody who comes alongside, it comes alongside you and offers you strength and endurance. See, this is the kind of thing that Bill Michaels is going to be pleading for on his fifth trip up. I need strength, I need comfort to endure. And that's a good picture of it. In fact, the root word here is parakaleo. And for those of you who are Greek experts, you'll know that this describes somebody else in the Bible. When Jesus is with his disciples, he says in John 14, I'm going to send somebody else who will parakaleo, a paraclete, come alongside you. That's the Holy Spirit. So if you want a picture of what comfort's like, and Paul has more than that in mind, but the Holy Spirit is a paraclete in the Greek, comes alongside you, and part of his role is to comfort you. I think the Amplified Version is helpful in this. Spacing's a little off there. I apologize. For those of you who are visually upset by that, I'm sorry. That's not comforting to me, by the way. That's the stuff that's discomforting. Um, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete. Same word as comfort. And then this is the words the Amplified Bible uses to try to describe that. Helper, comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby to be with you forever. So if you want a picture of God being the God of all comfort, maybe that helps you understand a little bit about what Paul is saying. This is what it's like for God to be the source and the provider of all comfort. And you know what's amazing about this? That's true whether you're a believer or not this morning. God is the source and provider of all comfort. You may not be somebody who would call yourself a follower of Christ, but it's made clear in other places that when that sun shines on you and the rain falls on you, if you need to be warmth, warmed by the sun, you know you come out and you hit it, you're cold and it warms and you're like, ah, that is, feels so good, doesn't it? To feel the burst of heat. Or what, the opposite is true. You're so hot and then the rain comes down and it cools you down. Ah, it's amazing. That comfort comes from God whether you recognize it or not. He is the source and provider of all comfort. You know, we all have comfort food, right? Some of you maybe today you'll go over and if it's a, a spread of Mexican food, that is your comfort. It's probably true for me. That's a go-to. The flavors, the, the memories, the association, it's, it's comfort. Maybe it's chicken noodle soup for you. Or chicken biryani might be your comfort food. Or Twinkies. <laughs> I, I don't know what your comfort food is. It's something that you just, that gift doesn't just come from hostess. 
It comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights above. He is the source and the provider of all comfort. Now, for somebody who's in Christ, somebody who says, yes, I have trusted the Lord, you can enjoy that on a completely different level, too. A, a more textured, beautiful, rich one. You recognize this is a gift from God. And furthermore, when you're in a place where you're not comfortable, you can call on him because he provides the comfort. This is what's so beautiful about being a follower of Christ. For me, in moments when I don't sense that comfort, I go to the one who can provide it. He's the source of it all. He's the provider of comfort. This is a theme all throughout the scriptures, and Paul is picking that up now. You could look back at Isaiah 40. I love that imagery. Isaiah is a prophet, and, and he's speaking at a time when everything is, is kind of rough, and he has this picture of somebody coming and making the rough things smooth. It's a, a picture of who Christ is going to be. And he says, comfort, Israel, comfort my people. When you're in a place of despair, he is the source of all comfort. And Paul knew that. He'll talk about it more. And in fact, here he says, why is it that God is comforting you? Is it so that you have a full belly and you bask in the glory of the awesome sun? No. Part of the reason you've been given it, this isn't the total, but he's focusing here on something very specific. You are comforted by God so that you can comfort others. That's what he says here. This God in verse 3 who comforts us in our troubles, why does he do that? Verse 4, so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. When you get that comfort from God and the assurance maybe of his presence and his purpose is in you. It's not to be kept. In fact, what you've been given is what I would call a sacred trust. Especially those of you who have had unique forms of suffering. They're very real, and they're very painful, and they're very deep. And it's a trust that God has given you. Not for you to keep to yourself, but to come alongside and author, offer others comfort as well. And in fact, you can do it in a way that others can't if you've had a unique experience. I, I, for me, that, that conveys a picture of it. I have a sacred trust. If I've suffered physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, your pain, your suffering is a gift to be shared with others, to comfort them in their time of pain and grief. And Christ, he says, he's the agent of this comfort. He himself suffered but he didn't just suffer for suffering's sake. He suffered so that we could know him as the great comforter in his spirit. He's the great model for that, for sure. And what that might look like for you in whatever context you are, are words to people who are suffering like this. You're not alone. I understand. I get it. I'm sorry you're going through this. That's sacred trust. Now, there's a lot of suffering in the Bible. Job may be the one who suffered the most. Who can imagine the tragedies he endured if you don't know the story? He was a man of incredible faith. And we get a glimpse in the heavens of Satan coming to God and saying, the only reason Job praises you is because he's had a great swanky life. Hashtag blessed would be his theme 
if he were to tweet out things. But if you took stuff away from him, his family, his health, he'd curse you. And so God says, no. He's a faithful servant. I give you permission to take that stuff away. And he does. He loses his family. He loses his health. He's undergoing tremendous suffering. And he has a group of friends who care about him. And they've been given a sacred trust to come alongside him. They start out so well. Perhaps you know this. This is, this is what we read back in chapter 2. Job's three friends hear about the trouble that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. That's why they went. Here's somebody going through a tragedy. Let's come alongside our friend and comfort him. That is their intended desire. After a while, though, and 16 chapters in, because when they come alongside, they sit with him for a long time. And as many of you know, the trouble begins when they open their mouths. Okay, there hasn't been enough processing and, and morning time just sitting there. They open up and they start saying, I wonder why this happened to you. You know, they don't know what's happened in the courts of God, so they're hypothesizing. Maybe you're not as holy as you think you are. Maybe you're being punished for your, the sins of your children. Maybe, and they start talking, and by chapter 16, this, this is what Job says, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters. <laughs> All of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Job says, you're not comforting me at all. I, don't you think I'm already thinking about all these things? What have I done wrong? How have I failed? And all you're doing is reinforcing that. You're miserable comforters. I mean, if somebody is going through tragedy and doing something difficult, then sometimes the best thing you can do is just sit with them. And we don't like that because we want to make it better. You want to fix things, right? But there's a lot of sitting in the Bible. There's a lot of waiting in the Bible. There's a lot of enduring. The comfort that comes is going to come from God. And there's, it's not that there's nothing to do. Paul will talk about it. In just a second, some of what that looks like. But Paul absolutely is saying, I, part of why I'm writing this letter is because there are a lot of people like Job's friends in the congregation. When he starts suffering, they say, look, that disqualifies him. His life would be a lot better if he actually were an apostle. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. In fact, I am strongest when I am weakest. He's turning this upside down. It's the same thing Jesus does. The economy of how things are in God's kingdom is completely upside down. And so when Paul has tragedy, the first question isn't what you've done wrong, what you've done wrong but how are you responding to it? And Paul talks about the opportunities when that difficulty comes to see God's grace at work in him in such a brokenness that his reliance is not on all the great things he's done, but on God's grace once again. That's exactly what he says. This is exactly what he says in the next few verses. In verses 
8 through 11, he tells them that our greatest comfort is experienced by relying on God at our lowest points. I mean, the things that he's enduring are very difficult to imagine. His hardships were so intense, he felt the sentence of death. That he felt like he was dying. And sometimes, actually, it was, he was on the way to it happening, if you know much about his life. He had repeated imprisonments. How many of you have been to jail for your faith? None of you? So you can't offer too much comfort there for him and there. Repeated times. He was beaten for, with 40 lashes five separate times. Has anyone here been beaten for their faith? He was stoned. People were throwing rocks at the guy. If you've ever been assaulted, not even for your faith, just felt that before, you know how hard that is, how unnerving that is. He was shipwrecked three times, sleepless nights. I know some of you have had those. He knew what it meant to be hungry and thirsty without food. He was exposed to the cold. He experienced betrayal, slander, desertion, abandonment. So much so that it was beyond his human capacity to endure. So repeatedly he was at the point of giving up. And he felt like the sentence on him was just death. I'm going to die. What do you do at a time like that? Why is this even happening? And in verse 9, Paul says, for him this happened so that he might rely on God. There's, there's, there's a point at which, and he knows how easy this was in Philippians 3. We rely on all these systems we have in place for our safety and our comfort. Right? A, a salary, or a 401k, or a nice neighborhood, or a good school district, or... You know, whatever it might be, is all these safety nets maybe that we have in place, what if they're ripped all away? What have you got to rely on there? And these, are, these can be good things. They're gifts from God. Deuteronomy 8 makes it clear. Even that is from God. But moments when that's taken away, you discover what are you really relying on the most. Paul says that was taken away from me so many times, I had to rely on God. Had to be God. If he doesn't show up, I'm done. Finished. Repeatedly he experienced that. What does he do in that moment of absolute dependence? And we see what he does here too. But the important thing to note as well is that he's worth relying on because you know what he can do? He can raise people from the dead. Jesus was the proof positive. So if you have to rely on anybody, go with the person who raises the dead. That's what Paul's saying. I've come to a point of absolute reliance. Who do I rely on? God. Can he do it? Yes. He can. He can take a dead person and make him, make him alive. How much can you do by comparison? Very little. When we talked last week or a couple weeks ago, I can't remember anymore about relying on God's spirit, independence, even for evangelism. You see how much grace we need just to stand. Paul knew that. Paul knew it. And we get, it's easy for us when we have a lot of things around us to, to forget that basic reality. Sometimes the greatest gift God can give us is stripping us of all the things we rely on. Because then you can only rely on him. And sometimes we don't see that until we get to that point of desperation. 
we were talking about this in, in our life group, and uh, Bob pointed to us, us to the necessity of prayer by E.M. Bounds, and, and a quote that he had come across there that he uh, reminded us of and reads from time to time. And this is what a man, A.C. Dixon, says, a dear friend of mine who was quite a lover of the chase told me the following story. The chase being uh, a, a hunt, right? So dogs are, are sent to, on a hunt to, to chase out foxes and deer or whatever, and a hunter's ready to, to, to take them as, as quarry. Rising early one morning, he said, I heard the baying of a score of deer hounds in pursuit of their quarry. Looking away to a broad open field in front of me, I saw a young fawn making its way across and giving signs, moreover, that its race was well nigh run. I don't know how that translates. There's a little bit of old English here, too, but there's a tiny little deer running away <laughs> from, from dogs, and he's tired. He has no more strength left, or he's getting close to the end. Reaching the rails of the enclosure, it leaped over and crouched within 10 feet from where I stood. A moment later, two of the hounds came over when the fawn ran in my direction and pushed its head between my legs. I lifted the little thing to my breast and swinging round and round fought off the dogs. I felt just then that all the dogs in the West could not and should not capture that fawn after its weakness had appealed to my strength. The fawn didn't know where to go, so he went to the only place he could find comfort in something that looked stronger. So is it when human helplessness appeals to Almighty God. Well do I remember when the hounds of sin were after my soul until at last... I ran into the arms of Almighty God. And for so many of us, that's where the story begins, but it doesn't stop there. We continue running back to the arms of Almighty God. Who are you in this story? Who are we? I think a lot of us think we're the guy who rescued the fawn and kicked off the dogs. You're the fawn. I'm the fawn. We're the ones who are weak and helpless. The man who's kicking those people off, that's God. The Father, the source of comfort, Christ, our defender, the Holy Spirit, our advocate. And we run into their arms. Can he save us? The proof positive is Jesus. He rose from the dead. That's a rescue that only God can make. And there are a lot of those kind of rescues in our lives. Only God can do this. No matter what kind of training you might have, there are points when you have to rely on God. And practically speaking, in verse 10, Paul is writing this because God has delivered him. In the past, we talked about all the things he experienced. God delivered him. He saw him as the source of that deliverance. And his hope is that God will continue to do so until he calls him home. And in the meantime, the most practical way to demonstrate that reliance and to come alongside others, comforting them in times of need and trial, is through prayer. I mean, look what happens here. What does Paul say? On him we've set our hope, so it's not on circumstances, it's on God, that he will continue to deliver, to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. If someone says, how can I help you? Praying. Praying is precious for those who are in a place of reliance on God. Paul says that. You help by your prayers. And it's not just saying I'm praying. It's actually doing it. Do you know how effective the prayers of God's people are? Paul is staking his very health on it. 
in my time when I feel the sentence of death, you've got to pray for me. There are other things to do, I know, but here's how you help. Pray. You help us by your prayers, he says. And then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answers to the prayers of many. He sees your prayers as effective in rescuing him from these dangers at a point of utter reliance on God. And that's true for us individually, too. I think one of the ways you, you demonstrate your reliance on God more than anything else is simply by praying. I think we mentioned this last week as well. I mean, you have, you, what does prayer do? You're, you're talking, right? If you don't believe in God, you're just talking to the air. But even if you do, you're trusting that he's going to do something you cannot control. And, and Paul says that's a good place to be because he's the only one who can actually raise the dead. So in a point of desperation, you can do all your best, but it's not going to affect very much change at the end of the day. Some, but not the kind of thing that raised. How many people have raised? You know, if, if I were to go right now down to the cemetery, how much success do you think I would have coming back with one of the people who have been dead for 100 years? Saying, tell us a little bit about your time in the grave. If I did that, you'd be quite impressed. I'd be scared of myself if that happened. It's not going to happen. I cannot raise the dead. So why do I think I can affect that kind of change in dead hearts around me? I can't. I have to rely on God. That's it. And he gives us all kinds of means and mechanisms and, and other what we call secondary causes. But at the end of the day, those will not be effective unless God is at work raising the dead. That's true of our spiritual lives, and that's certainly true of anything else that's broken inside of us. And if I, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be up here. You cannot rely on me to do something like that. I, I can't do that, but Christ can. He can do anything. God can do anything. I say that with absolute confidence. Because he's done it in me. He's raised me spiritually from the dead and given me new life. Here's a prayer. If you don't know how to pray, we've done this before, but I think it's really worth praying. Some of you are familiar with the, whoops, the serenity prayer. I don't know if that already came up or didn't, but this is, this is a, a combination of Reinhold Niebuhr, who, who wrote this some time ago, and Tony White. I don't know if you came up with those little parenthetical comments on your own. All right. They're fantastic. But if, you, if you're just looking for something to pray, why not pray something like this? Okay, this is, you may be familiar with this, but just a reminder. God, grant me the serenity. And I, I would say something like peace or comfort, right? The serenity to accept the things I cannot change. This is Tony's parenthetical comment. You can't change others and you can't change the past. Give me the serenity to accept those things. You can't change other people, people. You can't do it. And you also can't change the past. I know a lot of us have, hello, my name is regret for the past. Can't change it. There's a point at which you accept that's just a part of your story. And, and it, it may be sad. I'm not saying it doesn't affect you. But there's a point where you come to peace. It's saying, I'm at peace. I cannot change the past. And I have to come. Because if you can't change it, you will never know peace until you accept it. It's, it'll be elusive. 
and the courage to change the things I can. Myself, and of course there's a little asterisk there, you certainly need God's help to do that, but you can, you can work on changing the way you think, okay, the way you speak. I mean, with God's help, all that can be changed. And your plans for the future. I had this image yesterday when I was riding my bike on the Love and Bike Trail, just, the, you know, you ride long enough, it all starts looking the same, but it's very, very pretty. And I just had this picture of like, I'm riding somewhere toward, toward a future. Some of you feel like you don't have a future, but you do. And you can pray that God would give you the strength to change your plans because you can't affect what's going to happen next to a certain measure, obviously. But you, you can do that, have courage, and then finally, the wisdom to know the difference. Boy, isn't that a great line? That God would use clarity, this measure of peace. There are some things we can control. But even those we know we need God to come alongside us to affect any sort of permanent change. So, the God of all comfort. That's where Paul starts off in this book. And we're going to keep journeying through and praying for more grace uh, along the way in this journey. Father, I do pray you would take the words of your scripture and imprint them deep in our soul especially for those of us who might feel weary. We know that we can rely on you ultimately. And we're so grateful that you give us comforters in our midst who speak at the uh, words of comfort to us. And what that looks like, sometimes we need your Holy Spirit's wisdom for. We cherish those words of healing. We pray that we would be people who speak words of comfort to others as well. And we pray that we would know the grace and peace of Christ. And we're so thankful that you have called us into your family, those of us who call each other brothers and sisters. And we pray that maybe if we don't know what that means, you would tug in our hearts and show us the lavish love of God that he's called us to embrace, not only between us and him, but between us and those around us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.